ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Jacob Harrison rents his home with two other students. It's pretty depressing looking in my pantry at the moment. I'm working three jobs and receiving Oz study and still I'm barely making it. Tenants go on feeling the pinch with the data showing the cost of renting is still headed north. The Greens are demanding the Prime Minister push for a rent freeze. The Greens push for a two-year rent freeze and a cap on what landlords can charge has failed. Premier Chris Minns has ruled out putting a cap on rents as a way to address the crisis in the rental market. Every bit of international research and most economists agree that if you pursue that and do it at scale, you'll put massive pressure on supply. Rents in the cities and regions of Australia have risen sharply during the past three years. The Greens argue that a rent freeze or a cap on rents will help, but this idea has been rejected by most federal and state politicians, who argue that rent controls result in investors moving out of the market and a decrease in the number of rental properties. Hello, I'm Annabel Quince. In this revision, the story of rent controls when and where they've been used, and are they as effective as the Greens would have us believe or as terrible as the major parties argue? Well, there are states in Australia that are starting to experiment with rent controls, like the ACT. Our focus will be overseas. Rent controls, the freezing or fixing of rents, sound simple, but nothing about housing policy is simple. But let's start at the beginning, because rent controls aren't new. They have been around since the time of the Romans. If you're asking about the very first, then we have to go back 2,000 years ago to the Roman Empire. Julius Caesar introduced the first rent control in Rome, and then there were examples of rent control mostly in Europe, so in Italy, in Spain, in France, Malta, but also you find an example of rent control in China, in South China, 12th, 13th century. Well, my name is Konstantin Khaladirin, and I'm a research associate of German Institute for Economic Research. And then we find most examples in the medieval Europe, in Paris during French-Prussian War, and then the mass rent regulations that came during World War I. One of the first to introduce rent control was England in 1915, and then it became a mass phenomenon in whole Europe and then in the whole world. In the century before World War I, populations across Europe and the United States had moved from rural areas into the city. As home ownership was almost non-existent, people relied on the private rental market, which was often very poor and overcrowded. Marita Hoffner is Assistant Professor in the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment at Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands. Well, in principle, industrialization swept across Europe and that meant that a lot of people moved towards cities and the housing conditions were really bad as overcrowdedness, etc. It was mostly renting and ownership was reserved for the better-off population. There is very limited to no public housing at this point. My name is Mark Paul. I am an assistant professor of economics at the Blaustein School for Public Policy at Rutgers University in New Jersey. 
1890, Jacob Riss, who was a Danish immigrant, wrote this wonderful book entitled How the Other Half Lives, which really highlighted the tenements of New York City and brought into people's hands images and descriptions of how people were living in New York, the biggest city in America. And it horrified Americans and outraged policymakers, realizing that simply leaving housing up to private landlords wasn't going to provide for basic human needs. When workers don't have a decent place to sleep and clean sanitation, they're not going to be productive workers. Yeah, up until the First World War, maybe 80 to 90% of people rented privately. It was a free market. My name is Ken Gibb. I am a professor at the University of Glasgow, and I'm the director of the UK Collaborative Centre for Housing Evidence. And certainly there were major issues of housing conditions. People were overcrowded, etc. So the initial impetus for market intervention was health. It wasn't health, but rather the inflationary pressures sparked by World War I that led to widespread rent control in the United Kingdom. Well, the main push with that was the First World War. There were rising rents and there were rent strikes as people protested while fighting a war. They felt they were having their housing costs gouged, as it were. And so it was a political campaign in different towns and cities, which ultimately led to a national system of rent control. And across Europe, it was a similar story. There were rent freezes. So it means that the rent was set at some fixed level. Typically, it was the level of rent paid prior to some big event. In that case, World War I. So like August 1914 or September 1914. So the landlords had no right to raise rent above this level. And then also, whenever the contract is finished, it's up to tenant to decide whether he or she wishes to leave or stay in the apartment. And the landlord couldn't prevent them from doing this. Until then, the contracts were very short, typically one year, maybe half year. And uh, of course, it was very insecure for tenants to live under such arrangements. And in the United States, it was housing pressures, again sparked by World War I, that led to widespread rent controls. First, rent control was really enacted during World War One in the 1910s. And this was federal action, but really implemented regionally, predominantly in areas with large defense industries where they were seeing the biggest housing crises. We have to remember that these huge shifts in population patterns put major pressure on the housing market. And so the government stepped in with what's called first-generation rent controls. This was effectively a rent freeze. So let's say you're paying $1,000 a month in rent. It would freeze that rent at $1,000, and the landlord could not raise that rent, period. When these controls started to sweep across Europe with World War I, were they seen as something that was just going to be a temporary thing or were they something that, that were coming in for good? Like, how were they perceived then? Sure, it was considered as something temporal. It's, it can be compared to the similar regulations that were adopted during COVID. In all these regulations, World War I or Corona times, you always find the limit date saying until the extraordinary situation is over 
in the case of World War One, it was the war. So until the war is finished, we have these regulations, maybe a couple of months or years afterward, until the situation gets normalized. In case of COVID, it was until the end of the extraordinary situation resulting from the pandemic. So it's very similar. And did that happen? I mean, if you look across Europe at the end of World War One, did those rent controls and regulations actually get taken away or do they stay in place through parts of Europe, through the, the sort of the depression and into World War Two? In fact, in most cases, they were removed not immediately, maybe a couple of years after the war. In some cases, they stayed for a longer time. And it was done also in very gradual ways. So typically, the exceptions were introduced for newly built housing. So the housing that was built after a certain date, like 1918, it wasn't subject to rent regulations. Then also, there were some exemptions for big and luxury housing, because they thought that people who were able to rent such dwellings didn't need any protection. And so gradually, the more and more dwellings were leaving the, this regulation sphere. The economic shock of the Great Depression in the 1930s was followed by the political and military crisis of World War II. And again, there was a push for rent control on both sides of the Atlantic. After World War I, those rent controls were essentially repealed. And it wasn't until World War II that we saw them come back. In 1941, President Roosevelt, through the Office of Price Controls, essentially told the Office of Price Controls to create a policy to stabilize rents across the country and ensure that workers here, again, largely in the defense industry, could afford to meet their bills and have a decent place to live. And this is where we started seeing really widespread rent control have huge benefits across the United States. At the end of World War II, nations who hadn't directly experienced the war, like the US and Australia, lifted their rent controls quickly. But in Europe and the UK, where a large part of their housing stock had been destroyed in the war, the controls stayed in place much longer. The idea is that now we cannot build enough housing, so let's bridge this period by adopting these rent control regulations. And in some countries, again, the removal, the lifting of the regulation was pretty quick, like in the US. So in the US during World War II, there was rent control at the national level. But then in the late 40s, almost no state except New York had these regulations anymore. In Australia, I know that the regulations were adopted at the state level. And I think even in Australia, they were lifted quite quickly. In other countries, like, uh, for example, in continental Europe, in most cases, the, the regulations stayed there for another 20, even 30 years. Twelve years after the end of World War II, the UK did lift its rent controls. But immediately, investors fled the sector and controls were reintroduced in the 1960s. 1957 was a really infamous period of deregulation, which people had thought would help the market grow, but it did the opposite. People bailed out of the market because they had the ability to do that. But as I say, the Labour government reintroduced them in the 1960s and they, they again, with some amendments, stayed in place till 1989 when 
thereafter any new tenancy was a deregulated free market tenancy with a shorter tenancy. In the late 1980s, the Thatcher government deregulated the rental market across the UK. And since then, the market has grown significantly. But it's unclear if that growth is due solely to the deregulation or to the introduction of tax breaks for landlords. I think initially there wasn't a lot of new supply. There was certainly investment because there was a subsidy vehicle which gave big tax breaks to investors, but people entered the market and then they left it again. So it probably didn't have a huge net impact and it only lasted for five or six years. It was really only about 10 years after the deregulation that the buy-to-let phenomena began. That's where individual investors could take out mortgage loans effectively preferential arrangements because as a business loan they were getting tax deductibility and that was basically a good way of people alternatively developing their pensions. So what you got instead was a big increase over about 10 years in small-scale landlords investing on a large scale as property prices increased and people saw that as a good way of generating a rental income. That's where the growth came from. That's where the vast majority of growth in the rental market happened. After the mid-1990s, the rental market really rapidly grew in Britain, in each part of the UK, and really was unplanned, surprising, and kind of policymakers and practice in the housing sector were kind of caught in the hop by this big increase. The owner-occupied sector kind of stalled in growth, and social renting had been declining for quite a long period, and the private rent sector became the, the hub of growth, as it were. The Netherlands took a very different approach. All housing stock was rent controlled, and only in the 1990s did a small section of high-end rental properties become deregulated. In principle, you know, rent control lasted in many countries way after World War II, from World War I to the 50s and 60s, but even in some countries to the 80s, and there might even be some smaller segments of the private rental market that are still controlled. In the Netherlands, rents were regulated regardless of ownership up until the early 1990s. Whether it was a social landlord, private landlord, whether it was a person landlord or a company landlord, that didn't matter. The rent price regulation, the rent price control was the same. And it started by building a system in the 70s, a point system for the quality of the rental dwellings. So, for instance, for three rooms, you get that many points. For a balcony, you get that many points. For central heating, you get that many points, etc. So there was a whole system built to determine the quality of a dwelling. And based on the quality of a dwelling, the rent level was set. And in the 1990s, there were two first steps to reduce rent control. The top segment of the market, the more expensive dwellings and the new dwellings, the rents were deregulated, as we call it, or they were liberalized. So Europe, very different systems in different countries. The kind of rent controls that were implemented in the Netherlands and other European nations were very different from the first generation of controls. These second generation controls were more flexible and allowed investors to have an ongoing return on their investment. 
the first generation, meaning rent freeze, and that's the regulation that we see during both world wars. And then like late 60s, early 70s, the second generation of rent control came and it was more flexible. So typically they didn't fix the rent at some um, constant level, but they rather tried to find some pricing market solutions. So they were looking at the comparable rents of dwellings in the same neighborhood. If your rent was more or less similar to the rent of other dwellings with similar size, similar condition and similar location, then it was okay. So if the rents of other dwellings in the neighborhood were changing over the time, you also could adjust your rent. So you didn't have to wait for the government to allow you to do this. And there was no rent freeze. So the rents could change also as the inflation went on. So in many cases, you had this adjustment of rent increases to the living cost. So you were allowed at least once a year to raise your rent to the same degree as the consumer prices increased. It was these second generation of rent controls that started to be adopted by some US cities and states as a result of the inflationary pressures of the 1970s. It's really in the 1970s in the United States that we start seeing rent control enacted both at the state and local level. And this is where we start seeing the adoption of what we call second generation rent control, which is what we use here today, which is rent control that says, yes, rent prices can go up every year, but they can only go up every year, perhaps by three, four, five percent. And different localities have different regulations as to how much that rental price could increase. So for example, some places say, you know, rents can increase up to 5% a year, while other places use local measures of inflation and say, okay, rents can increase up to the local measure of inflation plus 2% every year. It's a common misconception when people hear the word rent control, they think one size fits all, but that's actually completely not the case. We have dozens of different localities with dozens of different rules in terms of what actually makes up their version of rent control. So what impact have these second generation rent controls had on the rental market? Have they protected tenants or have they led to investors fleeing the market? From a traditional economic point of view, rent controls do have those effects because capital investments are mobile. And if the landlord is no longer able to earn the return compared to other investments, then it's an easy way to move out. The Netherlands ended up with 10% private renting in 2010. So the market share of private renting was 10%. And we started with 60% after World War II. So that's more or less a general trend in many European countries, or in most, I think. Even in Spain, I think there was 80% private renting, while now it's <laughs> also 10% or something like that. There are many aspects that flow into this. Part of it could be that it's not attractive to invest in uh, rental dwellings, although the global financial crisis and the COVID period showed that pension funds, for instance, 
like rental income because it's robust and it's trustworthy. So there is also still some interest or some recovering interest investing in the private rental sector. And particularly since rent control has been reduced in these past years, these examples show that there is a balance. You need to be careful about this balance. When will the investors leave and when will they not invest in maintenance, etc., improved dwellings and things like that, and how to protect the tenants. But each country has a different setting. Despite having rent controls, the two richest countries in Europe, Germany and Switzerland, have a huge rental market. Germany and Switzerland have a huge private rental sector. I think it's still about, in Germany, it's still about 60% and similar in Switzerland. Even though there may be rent control, as I explained, it's market-based rent control in Germany. But there have been calculations that investing in rental housing is cheaper than investing in home ownership. So in Germany, for instance, there was always the possibility tax-wise to depreciate the income tax, corporate or personal. So you could always have a deduction which affects your profits from renting. So the whole system in a country works towards how private renting works and how the different tenures work. What also was very important in different countries, particularly in Northwestern European countries and Middle European countries like France, Germany, Austria, is that social renting was very much subsidized so there was less room for private renting. And home ownership often was very much subsidized too by the tax system. So in principle, private renting was not that interesting. And if there was some rent control as well, that added to these types of unbalances in the housing markets. First of all, talking about rent control, it has intended and unintended effects. And, of course, the intended effect is the decrease in rental burden. But you also have a range of negative effects that should be taken into account. So, first of all, you have positive effects on the sitting tenants, those living in the controlled regulations. But you can also have negative effects on landlords who lose their income. You can also have negative effect on the tenants that are newcomers, because they typically have to pay a higher price than in the absence of rent control for their accommodations, or they even are forced to buy housing instead of renting it. And you also have the seating tenants that in the long term also suffering from rent control due to the decline in the maintenance and in the quality of the housing. And you also have negative effects on the housing construction. So if you take all these positive and negative effects together, then it's not clear whether the net effect will be positive or negative. There's also redistribution issues here. As I said earlier, there are insiders and outsiders. So in Sweden, for instance, it's known that they have a well-established kind of system of collective bargaining that determines how rent controls work. But it also seems to generate large queues of people waiting to get into rental market housing. 
in other places, it seems to be a better combination of policies. But I wouldn't want to say that rent controls are the cornerstone of that. I don't think that necessarily follows. Often, it's the provision of affordable and social housing and access to that that's that's really important. But again, there's there's often not, not enough of that. There's certainly not enough of that in the UK. So when we look at the benefits of rent control and what we're trying to do with the policy, does rent control provide cheaper housing? And the answer is yes. Study after study shows that rent control provides more affordable housing for renters. That's fairly clear. But the other benefits often get short shrift in the conversation. So one of the key benefits, as you just brought up, is increasing the duration of tenancy. It's people being able to call an apartment home and stay in their apartment, stay in their neighborhood. I mean, let's not forget how much social capital we have tied up in our neighborhood. We know our local launder, our local grocer, our local preschool. You know, we have our friends there, our community network sometimes our families. And so rent controls really help increase the stability of neighborhoods by allowing tenants to stay in their apartments and stay in their communities. This is particularly important for, you know, gentrifying areas, you know, areas that are seeing rapid economic growth. And rent control is a key policy that allows economic growth to benefit current populations rather than just have economic growth lead to gentrification where current populations are largely displaced because of rising rent prices, which is what we see in many unregulated markets. Some of the other benefits of rent control that I think aren't talked about enough is that rent control tends to increase and support neighborhood diversity and decrease economic inequality as well. So there's a whole host of social benefits and community benefits to rent control, if done well, that go beyond simply affordable housing, which is crucial in and of itself. I think the evidence internationally is that these more modest rent stabilisation third generation controls can do less harm to a market. They provide some modest affordability supports, but they're not in of themselves the key to any kind of holistic housing policy. It's part of a set of standards and expectations and and landlords and investors get used to that. And that's the point about political risk. If there's a stability in the regime and the environment and you can earn broadly CPI returns, then that's a very different environment to chopping and changing and all of that. Not everyone, however, believes that these second generation rent controls are an improvement on the free market. Of course, it depends on what you are using as a benchmark. So if you use the first generation rent control, then of course the second generation is better. But the problem is that when you are trying to do this, you are emulating the market situation. So the softer rent control is closer to the market than the harder rent control, than the first generation rent control. And then the question is, why not switch directly to the market? Why should you try to simulate it, to emulate it, instead of using the market itself? Because in that case, you have less bureaucratic issues. Housing is a special product or service. And it's not only a product, it's a human right. Everybody needs to live somewhere. So human rights usually are not served only by the market. They're not served well only by the market. In that sense... I do think you need the government 
And it cannot be done only by the government because experience shows that goes wrong as well. The moment there is a shortage and we need more supply. There's an important distinction here between what mainstream economists say about rent control, which tends to be they recognise a textbook example of a price control in a demand and supply setup. Therefore, it's a bad thing because it's interfering with a competitive free market. And what housing economists often say, housing markets in reality are not the competitive free market paradigm. They're often imperfect. And once things are imperfect, you can't draw the same conclusions. Ken Gibb, Professor at the University of Glasgow. Today's other guests, Marita Hoffner from Delft University of Technology. Konstantin Holodinen, Research Associate at the German Institute for Economic Research. And Mark Paul, Associate Professor of Economics at Rutgers University. The sound engineer is Isabella Tropiano. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision. Just a reminder before I go that a new season of Take Me to Your Leader with Hamish McDonald starts this week. And if it's half as good as last season, it's well worth listening to. This season, the personal tragedies that have shaped Joe Biden's politics and how being a comic actor prepared the Ukrainian president to become a great wartime leader. All that on more on Take Me to Your Leader. Follow it and Rear Vision on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.